So welcome to the Faith is Not Blind podcast. I'm Eric Devignier, and I'm here today with Professor Terrell Givens. Welcome, Terrell. Good to be here. Thanks for being here with us. I wanted to start just by um, asking you to give a little bit of introduction. Well, uh, my name is Terrell Givens. I am presently employed uh, as a senior researcher at the Miele Maxwell Institute for Religious Scholarship, affiliated with Brigham Young University. After having just very recently retired from 30 years of teaching at the University of Richmond in Virginia, my background is uh, in languages and literatures and uh, intellectual history, which I studied at Cornell and then graduated in comparative literature from Chapel Hill. And uh, immediately had my first job teaching literature at uh, the University of Richmond, where I was until just recently. And so tell us a little bit. You were. Um Born in New York State? Upstate New York. Upstate. Um, and then tell us a little bit about your, your conversion uh, to the gospel and to the church. Well, we had moved to Arizona, southern Arizona, when I was very young. And uh, my father uh, and mother joined the church when I was eight or nine. And so I'm never sure if that qualifies me to be a convert or if that means I'm a lifelong member. But uh, we joined at that point. Didn't, it didn't take initially we attended church for a few years and then just kind of faded out of activity. As a child, I wasn't quite sure why, still not sure of the reasons. But um, uh, so for much of my childhood, we didn't really have any connection to the church. When I was 16, my father had a kind of Lehigh experience of, of sorts. He suddenly uh, had the desire or the impression to move his family back east. And so I still remember as a 16-year-old, as a rather unhappy youth, pulling up to a campground in central Virginia, together with a family, a large family caravan, and uh, having the attendants ask my father, how long are you going to be staying in our campground? And my father said, until I find work. Wow. So like Nephi, I lived in a tent. <laughs> uh, that was actually my home address for a while, while my father looked for work. And uh, being kind of isolated and cut off from everything and everyone, uh, my parents looked up the local church. So as a 16-year-old boy, my family reconnected wow. with the church. And that was really when I began to, I think, take seriously yeah. my own religious commitment. Well, and I think it's interesting you bring up Lehi and Nephi. I mean, so so your dad you know, feels like he needs to move back east and, and, and is living there in the campground trying to find work. So did, did you feel like you had a similar experience to Nephi where, where part of your conversion um, to the gospel it also included trying to understand maybe what your, what your dad was seeing or what he was going through or, or where he had moved the family? I, I think so. Um, I was, I think I was ready at that moment in my life, right? 16, 17, pretty formative yeah. years. You're thinking about your future and college and those kinds of things. And I, I was struck by the fact that my father, that his commitment turned so profound so quickly. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it was largely a function of him really delving into Latter-day Saint doctrine and theology and being attracted to what he saw as its, its rational appeal. And so I immediately began to collect books, and built my own library, and, and, and delved into it myself, and uh, found very quickly a, a, a deep, lifelong commitment. What, what books in particular 
from that time period stand out to you? Like what were the ones that you enjoyed the most at that age? Well, ones that would probably seem a little dated now to, to most people. I remember Legrand Richard's marvelous work mm -hmm. in a wonder uh, affected me profoundly. Uh, that was the, the time in my life in which I read the Book of Mormon for the first time. Had uh, a wonderful seminary teacher who was very influential and, uh, and a state patriarch who I still revere his memory. Um, other than Legrand Richards, I think it was pretty much the usual kind of thing coming from Deseret and Bookcraft, yeah. Paul H. Dunn books and, and yeah. the like. And then what about your, your conversion itself? Did, did that conversion come through reading the Book of Mormon or was it in conjunction with the other books? Or I think it was, I think it was a combination of all of them. I think I was very much in, entranced by the, the, the fullness, the scope, and the complexity of what Latter-day Saints call the, the, the plan of salvation, the plan of happiness. Um, I just found it very, very intellectually appealing mm. as a set of um, propositions that addressed all the great questions. Mm. And then from, from there, um, you, know, you, you have that, that conversion that carries you through. And, and one of the things that we've been talking about in these podcasts is when, when people experience a conversion, there's, there's usually... Um, you know, one or many experiences that they have where that conversion gets challenged. And so for you, what was a moment um, in your life where, where that conversion got challenged or complexified in some way? Well, I would say the, the great challenge, first great challenge, first of many, didn't come until many years later as an adult and father. Um, I had a near-death experience, a near-drowning, which I won't delve into in this context, but it was an experience that left me very unsettled mm. and uh, feeling quite bereft of what until then had been a, a number of certainties and assurances with which I lived. And I found myself at a, at a place in my life where I was having to ask for the very first time what I think is a question that, that all of us need to ask at some point, and that is, and that's what, is there anything that I really know with absolute certainty? Yeah. Very few of us can say, I know, I, I, I know beyond any doubt that God lives or that Joseph was a prophet. Some can, to some is given that gift. Yeah. And I found to my surprise, um, but also to my comfort, that it turns out that there are some things that I knew at the deepest, deepest levels of my being uh, I knew that that uh, truth and fidelity and honor are good, and that cruelty and unkindness and wickedness and disloyalty are bad. Um, and for me, starting with that certitude that our moral sensibility transcends evolutionary inheritance right. or socialization. Uh, was for me an indication that that there is something like a veil that is permeable, that we do have access to to deep truths by which to guide and live our lives. And so I began, I guess, what I would refer to as a as a systematic reconstituting of my faith and testimony at that point in my life uh, that has continued to the present. And so you talk about this this systematic reconstituting, right? But how, how did that experience, in, in, in maybe including that or, or in other ways, how does that help you with your faith from, from that point on? 
Well, I think, I think I've become more acutely aware of the grounds of belief, and I think I have become sensitive to a greater variety of sources from which faith derives. Um, and, and I guess I'll give you a few examples. I, I, I've been very deeply impressed in my life by the, the poet Gerard Manley Hopkins mm -hmm. and one of his poems. And he went through his own dark night of the soul, wrote a series of beautiful sonnets. And one of them ends, uh, the Christ plays in 10,000 places, lovely in limbs and lovely in eyes, not his, to the Father through the f features of men's faces. And I have this sense, um, can't logically defend it, but it's just a deeply embedded sense I have that there, there has to be a source from which ultimate beauty and ultimate goodness come. And that I can see and sense that being transmitted uh, or being conveyed through the, the, the beautiful acts and countenances and, and, and features of those around me who have clearly been God-touched. Mm. And so that's one example of a source of testimony that I don't think I would have thought about as a 16-year-old right. new convert. Right. But it strikes me now as a very profound catalyst to or fortification of our faith. Mm. Yeah, that, that experience of beauty, right? Recognizing that it has to come from somewhere. Yeah. Our, our responses to yeah. it. Um, uh, another another question I have is thinking about your your background, some of the things that you've written, you know, Viper on the Hearth or, or By the Hand of Mormon, and and intellectual history. Have you encountered challenges to your testimony that have come from things that you've read or ideas that you've encountered? Yeah, absolutely. Um, for example, when I was writing By the Hand of Mormon, which was uh, really a turning point, I think, in my in my career. I'd opened the church news one day, saw that the church had just published the 100 millionth copy of the Book of Mormon, and I thought, I wonder how that compares to other bestsellers. Mm -hmm. and, it, and it turns out, as I learned very quickly, that that makes it the best-selling book in American history, produced by, by an American. So I secured a contract from Oxford to write that book. The question then became, how do you write as an academic, for an academic audience, a book on sacred scripture? You can't, you can't, you, you have to effectively bracket questions of faith. And, and supernatural origins. And so I wanted to write what, what we call in literature a reception history. How has the book been received, treated, packaged, understood? And I thought to do this, I wanted to, to read every single critical attack that had ever been leveled against the Book of Mormon, wow. which I knew was, you know, could be seen as flirting with danger. Yeah. But my, the premise behind my project was if the Book of Mormon can't sustain every single attack that has been launched against it, then it doesn't deserve our faith and, and commitment. And so I took that, that challenge very seriously and beginning at 1829 and proceeding to the present, I tried to cover this vast corpus of, of criticism, some of it fairly superficial and silly, but some of it fairly profound and vexing. And so I found a lot of hills and valleys to my faith as I waded through that project. Mm. But uh, in the end, I came up with a greater conviction and commitment to the Book of Mormon than, than I started with. Wow. Was, can you think of an example of, of something in particular that you thought was, was vexing? Um, well, of course, there have been many um, candidates that have been proffered for 
uh, as having provided influence. Right. You know, some of the first ones were the Spalding manuscript of the view of the Hebrews, later uh, a certain account of the War of 1812. And taking some phrasings in isolation, you do see what seem to be striking congruences at times or borrowings. But I, I fairly soon came to a, a place where I believe and continue to believe to this day that, that Joseph received the impressions, he received ideas, glimpses, pictures, images, concepts, uh, but that the Lord had to work through the cultural and intellectual vocabulary that was available to Joseph Smith. And so the particular means and, and wordings, I, I think, aren't, aren't the thing on which we should hang our faith. Right, right, that's an interesting, you know, we, we talk often about God having to work with our agency, but we often don't equate agency and imagination together, that, that, that God yeah. has to work with the imagination or, or simply just the cultural milieu of it. Yeah, and, and this, is, this is, I think, a, a source of a lot of, of, of serious misunderstanding on the part of members of the church, especially those whose faith is challenged. It's the question of, well, how could Joseph change revelations? How could, how could right. there be revisions? And yet I think the most, we, we've missed the point clearly um, as is evident in the fact that when the church published the Joseph Smith papers, and especially when they published the facsimile version of the Doctrine and Covenants. And when, I love the fact that it's, it's illustrated in seven different colors. So you can actually see color-coded the contributions of the series of editors and collaborators that Joseph invited into participation in the project. Mm. So here's a prophet saying, I declare these to be revelations given to me by the Spirit and yet, clearly, I can improve upon the wording and the right. phrasing and the formulation, right. and I invite these men to help me come closer to what I think was that, that essential truth toward which God was trying to move my spirit and mind. That seems to me a very humble confession and a very open and public confession on the part of Joseph Smith that revelation is seldom perfect, um, and that even as a prophet, he is an imperfect, flawed mediator Right. between God's word and his verbal expression. So, of course, it shouldn't confuse us or disappoint us if we find that even the Book of Mormon is not a literal transcript of God speaking to him through some kind of right. means. Well, because how are you supposed to talk about the sublime, right? I mean, how, how do you get that onto a page? Right. How do you communicate that? Um, it's a really, really difficult process rather than believing that revelation is something that's dropped into your head. Right. Right, and it's perfect. I often thought about that with um, the Kirtland Temple, right? The vision, the Kirtland Temple that they have where they get to see like every beam and, yeah. and, and yeah. They get a very detailed almost blueprint really. Um, maybe there are some revelations like that, but, but it also seems like most revelations aren't quite that detailed and things need to be worked out and thought through. Yeah, yeah, I think the notion of God dictating and Joseph with pen in hand as he hears the words is in almost all cases a little oversimplistic. Yeah, yeah. So um, thinking about your, your own conversion and, and some of those challenges and issues that have been raised, what are two or, th two or three things that you would say um, or, or what are two or three things that you do or that you would say to others to, to help you, that helps you remain faithful or that could help them remain faithful? Well, it was just this past week I was reading in Second Nephi and I'm coming to Lehi's sermon. 
his, his children. And he's talking about the atonement and he's talking about the fall. And he said something which in all my readings had, had passed, had, I'd, I'd, I'd missed. Talking about Adam and Eve's decision to eat the fruit of the tree, he said, if they had not eaten of the fruit of the tree, if they had not partaken, then all things would have remained in that state which they were when they were created. And I was suddenly struck by, I mean, think about what he's saying there. He's saying the worst of all possible fates and conditions would be to remain yeah. in the state in which God has created us. And so, to my mind, one of the most thrilling, exciting things about Mormonism is, is the fact that it is this dynamic, vital, growing, organic thing. And that God expects us to be engaged in this project of continual self-transformation and renewal. And so, I hope that in 10 years, the testimony and faith and understanding I have today seems naive and simple by, by contrast. So. I don't know where people get the idea that a testimony should be the same now and forever and that, and that somehow there's some kind of act of desperation involved in trying to reconstruct our testimony to meet new evidence. Right. No, we should always be reconstituting, reconstructing our, our, our testimony. Um, I, I, think, I think here's one of the greatest errors of, of of us as a people is, is the assumption. I mean, think, of, think about the, the presumption of believing that we can become like God, right? right. Which is just a foundational principle of, of, of Latter-day Saint thought. Yeah. Okay, if we believe that, the sin is in thinking that that distance between where we are now and where God is can be bridged by a couple of months of good home teaching and, and paying our tithing. <laughs> Right? I mean, the distance is so inconceivably immense. And so to think that we can capture in language or, or human conceiving at any given moment the complexity and the fullness and the richness of what it means to believe in Christ and his atonement and his gospel is just absurd and presumptuous. So, of course, we're just groping in the dark, trying to get some kind of a handle. It reminds me of, of the of John Keats, the poet, shortly before he died, knowing he was dying of tuberculosis. And he, 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 he writes this beautiful, pathetic letter to his brother George in which he, 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 he laments his incapacity to penetrate the veil. And he talks about these, these faint particles of light, as he calls them, that he, he detects and senses and tries to, 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 to grasp hold of. And I think we all need more humility when it comes to what we really mean when we say we know the gospel yeah. is true. What we mean is we have glimmerings that are hard affirms, that we have this faint grasp of some of the outlines of what it might mean to be God um, or to be human aspiring to be like God and to just be more humble about what our own limitations are at any moment to grasp the truth and be open to change and transformation and challenges to our testimony that force us to reconceive in more interesting, complex, and sophisticated ways uh, our faith. So, because one, one thing I think that's difficult is in order to produce the faith to do some of those things, like you know ministering or, or paying your tithing, I think people need to feel like there's more than just a glimmer. So, so what would you say um, to people that feel like they need more than a glimmering or, or how can they increase those glimmers 
um, to, to be as faithful as they feel like they want to be or as they need to be? Well, I guess we need to, f to, to, to reorient ourselves. Here's the, the thing, is that, is that the Latter-day Saint tradition is rooted in such a, an array of, of wild historical claims, right? Gold plates and angels and visitations and that, that we get distracted and that becomes our focus and, and that becomes our foundation. And so we lose sight of what the real purpose of religion is, right? Which is to invite us into this transformative relationship with God. And it's understandable because you can't, as some would have it, you, you know, the, the president of the reorganized church once said, history as theology is perilous. Well, of course it's perilous, yes. but we have to embrace the risk. Right. Um, because Christianity begins with a historical proposition. This man named Jesus of Nazareth was born, lived, and died. And then he came to life again at this moment in history in a real world. So you can't, you can't pretend that history isn't important. But it's, that's not the point. And so I, I, I guess, you know, people who were thrown for a loop because the book of Abraham wasn't translated in quite the way they thought it was. It didn't come from the source they thought it did. Or Joseph used a different translation method with the Book of Mormon than they expected. Those things are so irrelevant to what the point yeah. of religion is. And so I guess we just need to take upon us that individual responsibility of centering our religion in our relationship to the healer of the world and not to Joseph Smith or foundational right. historical moments. Right. That reminds me of a quote from, uh, from Wittgenstein where he, he talks about the Gospels and, and why, why God didn't just have four really fantastic historians write down the Gospels. And he just yeah, says, you know, yeah. he has these four people and, and they're just trying to write the best history that they can. And there are sometimes there are you know, contradictions or, or omissions. And he says it so that way we don't confuse the setting with what's actually taking place. Right. right? We don't get we don't get lost in the detail. Yeah. That, that we miss the testimony of of the Son of God. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's just the most important thing, the most essential thing. Yeah. Thank you. Appreciate it.